to the person of Jesus. And so that's what we're about this year. There are ways you can jump in and participate in that. I'm not gonna talk about all of that this morning. There is a Bible reading plan you can follow. And so this morning is the first sermon that ties in with what people read during the week, this past week. It's a Monday through Friday reading plan. Um, It's okay if you missed week one, if you're just hearing about it. If you can go back and catch up, great, but don't, don't stress about that. You can jump in this week. You can start tomorrow morning. Um, We even give you the weekends off so you can catch up if you need to. And so this is going to tie in with stuff that you guys read this week. Now, my commitment to you is this. The Bible reading plan, the life group stuff, that's all meant to supplement this year. I don't ever want you to feel like if you go to a life group and you're not doing the Bible reading plan, don't don't skip it. You can still go. There will be a lot of rich, good conversation to draw from it. You're not going to be left out. If you come to church on a Sunday and you're not doing the Bible reading plan, You're not going to miss out. The messages will speak for themselves, but it will all be enriched the more we dive into this together. Does that make sense? Got a helicopter flying overhead. All right. Okay, so here we go. So the way we're going to do this, I want you to think about this this way. I want you to think little picture, big picture. Does that make sense? Little picture, big picture. We will look at a specific story but we will, we will always step back and go, how does that fit into the larger story that's going on? Now, Genesis does this a lot. We read through the first 24 chapters this week. It covered a lot of ground. So let me, let me simplify it for you a little bit, okay? We started with creation. God made the world. He made man in his image, were his image bearers. And he made us to steward the good world he made. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Covers a lot in two quick chapters. Genesis 3 tells the story of the fall of man. Man, the stewards of this world and the stewards of our relationship with God, we broke that. And in that first story, it seems like a small thing. They eat the forbidden fruit from the tree they weren't supposed to touch. And then everything starts to fall apart. And so we have the fall. That's Genesis chapter, th- 20, or Genesis chapter 3. From that point forward, chapters 4 through 24, what we read was the fallout. It's the fallout of the fall. All the things that start to spiral and go bad. And so, yeah, Adam and Eve, it seems like this innocent story. They ate a piece of forbidden fruit. Why is that such a big deal? The very next chapter tells us why. Because one of their sons murders the other. That fast. It didn't take mankind hundreds of years to get to the point where we thought to to injure each other. Right after the fall, one brother murders another. And now we really start to see the weight and the consequence of our broken relationship with God. Of man being left to his own devices, living for myself, deciding for myself what works. And then we saw all these stories through the week that were little pictures of the big picture. We saw things like Cain and Lamech, people who just absolutely rejected and hated God and did murderous things. But listen, if we're honest, and we're gonna see this a lot this year, even the people that we label as heroes, and I do believe they're they're people of heroic faith, but even people that we label as heroes had major errors and mistakes in their life. You go through from Noah to Abraham, even Lot, like we just, we see these ways where they had big failures, and it gets ugly. Sin and broken relationship with God touches all of us. 
the most faithful of us need a savior. The worst of us need a savior and he's available. So that's the big picture. This morning, we're gonna lean in and look at the fallout on one of the biggest scales, really the biggest scale, and we're gonna look at the story of Noah and the flood. Now, without, you don't have to talk or anything, but just by show of hands, were there a couple of stories at least this week, if you were reading, that bothered you? <laughs> okay, thank you for your honesty. My hand's up. There's some hard stories in here. One of the hardest is this. God floods the whole world. What's going on with that? So let me give you the basic outline of the, the story of the flood. This is found in Genesis 6 through 9. God looks down at the world and he says, mankind is sinful beyond repair, and he declares judgment is coming. There's a 120-year warning, roughly, from the pronouncement and where Noah starts communicating truth to people of what's coming, and he starts building the ark. The second part of the story, I mentioned it. There's this one righteous man, Noah, who, who is called by God to build an ark to save mankind and all the animals. Noah builds it. The animals come. We won't talk about this this morning, but somehow he already knew something about what was clean and unclean, even though we don't have the law yet. But two of the unclean and seven of the clean came to the ark, and God shuts the door and seals them in. The floods come, and over the process of a year, rain falls, rain stops, the water goes down, they come to rest on a mountaintop, they're there longer, birds are released so they can test, is, is there actually something out there for us to go out to? And eventually, right at a year later from when the rain first hit, they're able to exit the ark. All right, so there's the broad strokes of the story. And then it ends with God making a covenant, a promise to mankind the rainbow is the symbol of him keeping that promise. And Noah worships him. And part of his worship is sacrificial. He sacrifices some of the clean animals and worship to God, all right? There's the broad strokes of the story. Now, I wanna hone in on this because this is essential. I'm not saying we will ever reach a place where we stop asking why. I, I know we're gonna wrestle with the why questions maybe our whole lives, I, I get that. So I'm not asking you to stop wrestling with that. But what I am asking you to do is be willing to consider what God has to say about something. That maybe he understands things more than we do. He sees things from a perspective we don't have and watch what he says because he gives some reasons why he felt that the flood needed to happen. And if, if we brushed past these couple of verses and don't catch this, if we don't understand the why, then the rest of the story is just baffling. How could God do that? So I want you to really hear this. What was the condition of mankind that would lead God to make a decision like this? So beginning in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. And he sees that in the earth. So this is broad strokes. Across the earth, God looks at man and says, their wickedness is great. He goes on to expound that. Look at this. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This isn't some like people who love God or are trying to follow him and mess up every now and then along the way. These are people who have completely abandoned and rejected God and what he says is good and right about living in this world. And they've given themselves over to wickedness, so much so 
that every thought and intention they have is evil continually. Paints a grim picture. This is, this is a destructive, violent, damaging atmosphere, and God says it's permeating all the people that I've made. It permeates the earth. Verse six, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. God's initial reaction isn't angry, I want to stomp you out. He's heartbroken. People that I have made in my image to love and tend and care for each other and this planet and who were made to be in right relationship with me, those people made in my image. Parents, the, be the best we can do to get there is like my babies, my kids. My kids are murdering and killing and destroying themselves and each other. My family is being ripped apart. They won't even interact with me. They act like I don't exist. Can, can you get there a little bit, parents? This is, this is what God is seeing when he looks at the people that he's made that he said is very good. Man's very good. And he's grieved and he's heartbroken that this is what's happened. And so he looks at this and he says in verse seven, so then the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Um, he picks back up, we'll come to the middle verses in a minute, but he picks back up in verse 11 and gives us two more verses to explain this. And I think these are just as important as hearing that man was wicked and his thoughts were evil continually because there's some additional words that, that tell us how bad it was. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It, it's warped, it's broken. And the earth was filled with violence. If you miss that, the flood seems like an overreaction. We have to understand something. Mankind was killing itself. The essence of who we were called to be was destroyed down to the fact that what's left? We'll read it in a second. Just this, this tiny little handful of faithful people. We're not even totally positive that Noah's sons were faithful. In fact, if we keep reading later, we find out at least one had something going on. There was like one, two, a handful of faithful people in the entire earth. And God's saying, this is my only chance to preserve humanity. This one healthy, faithful person that's left. If I can save and rescue and protect them, maybe we can start fresh and get another shot at this. But man left to its own devices, mankind is destroying itself. And so I've got to deal with this. It's now or never. Now, I can't convince you of that, but I, I hope that you will hear that and understand this perspective. I also just want to add to this. This is something to consider. I, my confidence in myself, or if I just use the real word for that, my pride doesn't like what I'm about to say. But the reality is the creator of the universe who made us and this world has a right to say this is how it's supposed to work. This is what is right. This is what is good. Now, thankfully, the God of the Bible, he's not a tyrant. When he says this is how it's supposed to work, he's saying that for our good, 
for our benefit. He made us to enjoy life with him, life with each other in this beautiful planet he had made. And so he has a right to stand back and say, listen, this is what is right and good. This is what will work. And if you miss that, you're missing out completely and you're, you're destroying yourself. You're doing damage to this world I made. You're harming people made in my image. And so whether we like it or not, either he's the creator or he isn't. Either he's God with a capital G or I can create one in my own image with a small g or I can act as if there isn't one at all. But if he's God and he's the creator, then he can say, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, here's what needs to be done. And that's what's happening in this story. I want you to consider this. It's been 10 generations from Adam. Ten, in 10 generations, the world had deteriorated like this. God created the world out of chaos and disorder. He called it into order and shone light on it. And in 10 generations, it had reverted back to chaos and disorder and destruction. And so God said, we gotta turn this around. Now, if you wanna understand this even further, this is, you know, I think this is for all of us, but for any of you Bible nerds that like digging in a little bit more, um, there's even more going on in this story. If we go look at the first four verses of this chapter, we're gonna move into some real weird, mysterious territory, all right? But it gives even more understanding for how bad things had gotten on the earth. In Genesis chapter six still, going back to verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, can y'all say sons of God? The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose and the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. His, his heart's breaking over what's happening. So there's these, these sons of God. That's a thing. Verse 4, the Nephilim, that's another thing, a little bit different. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The sons of God talked about here, the other three places they show up in the Old Testament, it's very clear that they're angelic beings. These are angels or demons. This is weird, mysterious territory. But our God is a, a spiritual God as much as a natural God. We live in a natural world, a physical world, but there is a spirit world. We have, spirit, we have a spirit within us. His Holy Spirit comes and resides in us. I believe in angels and demons. And he's saying there are spiritual angelic beings that were having relationships with women. It was producing something. It was producing the Nephilim. That's, that's a giant. That's a, that's a giant in the land. Now, this links the Nephilim, this links to the most fav famous, not favorite, the most famous giant of them all. Not Andre the giant, I got to work in my cheesy pastor joke once a week. Goliath. When we get there, we will see he is a descendant of this same type of behavior that was going on. This is why we have to understand the big picture. In our minds, this is just weird and strange and what's up with that. But we're not the only ones operating on this earth. From the garden, there was an enemy. 
And that serpent that worked to deceive Adam and Eve, he was told through the seed of the woman, you will be crushed, you will be defeated. Well, if the biological line from that woman is gonna lead to my destruction, what's the best strategy I could have? Cut that line off. And so demonic forces come in to taint the bloodline. Listen, y'all, the blood matters. It's Jesus' blood that covers and forgives our sin. The Bible, we will see, traces very carefully his bloodline all the way back to Adam. One of the things that's said in this passage is that Noah was perfect in his generations. That doesn't mean he always got it right and was a good guy morally. It means his bloodline was clean. So God was protecting the bloodline that would lead to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Satan was actively working to rip off and destroy God's plan of redemption. And he does that every single chance he gets. That is what's happening in this story. So there's weird stuff, there's mysterious stuff, and then there's stuff we can relate to a whole lot more clearly. I can relate to sin being destructive. I can relate to that. I've seen it in my own life. And man, you don't have to look long at the news to see it on display all around us. Sin is destructive and it destroys. And God's desire was to to rescue humanity because it was on its way down fast. Now, because I'm just willing to lean into all the hard stuff this morning, there was one more story that echoed this a little bit, wasn't there? As we moved into the life of Abraham and his relative Lot, we come to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is found in Genesis 18 and 19. Now, I'm not going to unpack that whole story, but I just want you to see God's plan of judgment on a smaller scale in that story involved both judgment for the wicked and the rescue of the few righteous that were there that were willing to come out. Some wouldn't even come. Lot's daughters were engaged to be married, and those men weren't willing to leave. But in that story, we see the same thing. I just want you to see this. Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21. This is right as God is getting ready to start talking to Abraham about what's coming. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. What he's saying, the people in the surrounding area are crying out saying, oh God, what's happening there is horrible. And it's, it's getting onto us. We are being harmed as a result of what's happening. God, this is devastating and destructive. And so God's hearing the cries and the prayers of his people. And he's saying, something awful is going on down there. I gotta see what's up. And then Lot stood as a sign of warning for people that wanted to be rescued and they didn't. And his judgment fell. Similar story. So, okay, Jake, man, this is awesome. We're like 10, 15 minutes in here and you've got lots of good news in your sermon this morning. How does this connect to Jesus? How does this connect to the grace and love of God? I sure want to know. Well, first of all, can I tell you, Jesus connected both of these stories, Noah and the flood, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. He connected both of them to himself. You can read more about this yourself in Matthew chapter 24 and in Luke chapter 17, but I want to read to you a portion 
of what's found in Luke 17. Now, in this passage, Jesus is, he's, he's preparing to go to his death, but he's being asked about when he, like, comes back, when he returns what for us now we would call the second coming of Christ, when he returns again to come in victory, to right the wrongs, to be the king. He was being asked about that. And so in conversation about that, he said, here's what it's gonna look like when I come back. Luke 17, verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That's the day of his return. But, he, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So he's making a distinction between him on earth at that moment in time and his coming death and the future when he returns in his day. And then he goes on to say, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. When I come back as the king, when I come back to call everyone to myself that belongs to me and to bring judgment on a, on a world that's destroying itself, when I come back, it's going to be just like the days of Noah. And he says, verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This is what Jesus said about himself and when he would come back. And the thing that he describes is that there is both a daring rescue attempt that will be successful to rescue out the faithful and there will be judgment on the wicked. But there is an additional thing that he's saying that the people in Noah's day rejected and that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah rejected and that many on this earth today reject. He says the most dangerous thing about the conditions then and the conditions now is nobody would listen. People went on with business as usual, ignoring the most important thing, our desperate need for God, our need to turn to him. The reality that if they were honest, if any of us are honest, we can look around this world and go, something ain't right. It might feel right at my house in West Knoxville, but something ain't right. People are getting on an airplane just trying to head home and get shot out of the sky. I, I could go on and on the list of things. You don't need me to read you the news. Something is not right. This world is broken. And we can all choose to believe what the source of that is or not. And we can all choose to believe whether there is a solution or not. But this story that we're reading and what I'm basing my life upon is the very word of God. I choose to believe the word of God. And he tells me what's wrong. And he tells me how he's working to make it right. Part of what makes grace special is if we're honest about the truth that it points to. Something is broken and needs remedied. 
we cannot carry on as business as usual. And thank God in Noah's day, he didn't. One guy didn't carry on his business as usual. In fact, he was willing to look like a crazy person because nobody had ever even seen it rain before yet. And he starts saying, water is gonna come from the sky and up from the earth. And so I'm gonna build this gigantic boat. What's a boat? (laughs) And it's gonna take me 100 years of my life to do it. And every day, for a hundred years, I'm going to warn anyone who will listen what's coming. Noah stood apart. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor. Your translation might say grace. That would be accurate. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah which was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. I can't even imagine. As bad as I think it looks now, it was 10 times worse then. And it'll be 10 times worse again. In the midst of that environment, Noah looked to God, trusted God, walked with God. Imperfect though he was, he faithfully trusted and walked with God. And he found favor in the eyes of God. That word favor is the word grace and it's the very first time it shows up in the scripture. The very first time grace shows up is God shining light into the grace of a man who was honest about the horrible conditions around him and looked to God to be his source of rescue and salvation. That's grace. And so grace absolutely shows up in this story because he finds favor with God. Tim Keller had this to say about grace. Only when we see the depth of our sin will we be electrified by the wonder of grace. I'm gonna gonna read that again. Only when we see the depth of our sin will we be electrified by the wonder of grace. See, I can look big picture at the whole world and see a need for grace. Am I willing to start by looking in the mirror? and say, my sin produces this same thing. My sin destroys. It rips me off. It harms others around me. My sin does that kind of damage. But thank God there's grace. Thank God there is his favor that will come on my life and rescue and heal and redeem my life. Because because he's made an ark for us. He's made a way of escape For us, grace is not just like a feeling or a nice idea or this this passive thing in God's heart. Grace is an active force of rescue and provision. Grace does something for us on our behalf. And our choice is to do what Noah does. Not to be perfect, not to get it right all the time, but just to look to God and say, I need you. And if there's something you're inviting me to do, I'm here. I'm in. And so Noah did all God asked him to do, and he built this ark, and he spoke truth to people and invited them to be rescued. I want to finish by just giving you a little glimpse of the ark, and then I'm going to wrap this up. Genesis chapter 6, now verse 14. God's giving him the, the explanation, practical steps of how to participate in this rescue attempt. 
Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 600 cubits. Its breadth, width, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. There's some really cool facts about the ark. I don't have time to get into all of them. Some of them are in my notes. I will tell you this just to give you a sense of the dimensions of this thing. It was one and a half football fields long. And that is using a conservative estimate for the cubit. There, scholars have done estimates of like what a cubit is in, in our day and age. 17 and a half inches is the smallest estimate. Some are in like the 24, 26, 30 inch range. 17 and a half inches is the most conservative estimate for a cubit. That would make the arc 438 feet long, almost a football field and a half. That's big. Noah by himself built the Dallas Cowboys stadium. <laughs> Just to give you some sense. Not quite that big. 80 feet wide, 44 feet tall. This thing was huge. Its volume would have held 1.4 million cubic feet. This thing was big. Anyways, there's been estimates done that you could fit 520 livestock rail cars inside the ark to give you a sense of how you could fit that many animals and the food in there. In fact, based on the estimates of that, they think that only a third of the ark was actually used to hold the animals. The other two-thirds was all the provisions and, and stuff. It was storage. Um, anyways, there's other cool things you can consider. Some of them are here in my notes. Um, but here's, here's one of the most important things about the ark. After Noah built it, God told him, I want you to do something specific. I want you to cover it inside and out with pitch, right? So we would picture maybe like tar or something like, like that. Cover it inside and out. We need to seal this thing. If it's actually going to float for a year and not spring a leak, it needs to be sealed or covered completely so that it, it makes it through the flood. Here's the interesting thing about this word pitch that is used here. Every other place in the scripture where that word is translated, it's not translated pitch, like something specific you would brush on. It's translated cover or atonement. This is the, this is the biblical word for atonement. Grace and atonement show up for the very first time in scripture in this story of Noah where God shows grace and favor to rescue a man and covers the vessel that he's gonna be inside so he makes it through to safety. The Bible teaches the idea of Jesus' blood being the atoning thing that covers our sin. It's his blood that works for our salvation. And it's mirrored right here in this bizarre early world ancient story from Genesis chapter six through nine. Who needs atonement? Who needs covering? Noah did. Derek does. He's raising his hand back there. You already got it, buddy. We all need atonement. The, the sinful people that judgment was for needed atonement and it was available to them if they wanted to get on the boat. And grace works the same way today. The atoning work of Jesus works the same way today. The most sinful broken of us, it, his love, his grace, 
his atoning, saving work is available for all of us. But the righteous also need it. Because as good of a boat builder as Noah was, as much as he could get all those dimensions right, the best boat he could build was gonna spring a leak without being covered by that pitch. The best of us are still desperately in need of the saving, redeeming, covering work of Jesus Christ. Amen? I wanna read this to you in closing. This very first verse will be very familiar to you. Maybe the ones that follow, not as much. But I want you to hear this this morning as if you're hearing it for the first time. Hear this. John 3, 16 through 19. I'm thankful for the love of God. And I'm, I am still very aware of my brokenness and my sin and how much I mess up. And I'm thankful that God loves me enough to save me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whatever judgment, whatever, um, whatever comes from God to, to deal with the reality of the destruction of sin and death, whatever comes from him, his ultimate heart is to save and redeem any who will, whoever will. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. This is crucial but in order that the world might be saved through him. God does not show up to condemn us. He shows up to save us. Verse 18 is the reality. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Our position apart from God is broken, corrupt, and condemned. That's just our condition. He shows up to say, I'm going to be honest with you about that condition. And then I'm going to offer you rescue from it. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the real judgment. You know, if I think the fire on Sodom and Gomorrah was judgment or the flood was judgment, God says, no, this is the real judgment. The real judgment is this. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's what God says the real judgment is. Will we look to him and realize, left to our own devices, what happens? Will we recognize that even if my position is a pretty righteous guy like Noah, I'm still in need of grace. I'm still in need of the covering and rescue of Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's the story of Noah. That's the story of the world that we live in. That's the story of my life. I'm grateful for the rescue that comes from my Savior, Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we'll take five minutes and just introduce our life group leaders to you. And I just want to say, I know we're a small church, and you know I don't ever want to embarrass anybody, and so I just want to say, when we're done this morning, 
and the life group leaders are up here visiting, you could come talk to me and just say hi, and nobody would know that maybe you were coming to talk to me because you needed to get right with Jesus. But I'm available for that. If you need to talk to somebody this morning and say, I need that saving, I would love to talk with you. There's grace and forgiveness available to you right now, today, in Jesus. All right? All right. Jesus, God, I'll admit I've, I've studied this story a lot. I think I understand it better than I used to. Lord, it's still hard for me. It, it is hard for me when I see the places in scripture where you talk about judgment. It's just hard for me to get there. God, when wrong is done to me, then I'm usually pretty happy about justice and judgment on somebody else. But when I recognize my own brokenness and need, judgment feels harsh. But God, I thank you that judgment is not the final word. Jesus, that you are the final word. That you came not to condemn us, but to rescue and save and redeem us. You came to pour out grace and favor on people in need. God, I'm one of those people. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me. God, help me to live like Noah, to be faithful in this generation, to share the hope and truth of your grace to a world in need, and to live it. God, that I wouldn't live a selfish, destructive, violent life that uses people and resources around me to make myself feel good. But God, that I would be an image bearer and a good steward of what you've blessed me with. And by your grace, that I could live life like that. It's in Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen. Amen.